0: Good morning, good morning, and good morning to anyone that's online. Uh, We are a community at this church of Christ followers who are committed to being real with God, real with each other, and real in the world. And this particular book is Paul's attempt to see them do just that. This is the goal. The goal of Colossians is for Paul to write a letter to a church he's never visited to tell them the most important news that they could ever hear. And he's trying to encourage them because their Christianity is something that they're super solid on, but there's all these other competitive perspectives and voices coming into the mix. And so Paul's case is, be encouraged, Jesus is enough. And, and so if you could go ahead and stand as we read from God's word, first... Uh, not, Colossians, not first Colossians, Colossians chapter one, verses 24 to chapter two, verse five. And this is the third week that we've been in on this. And so we're kind of inching through, but at the same time, we're biting off these massive chunks of information. And so I totally encourage you outside of this room to get into a small group where you can digest this stuff better, like in a small group space, you can ask questions, everything else, sign up for those small groups on your way out, Um, or just as you're getting together with friends over coffee or your girlfriend or your boyfriend, reread through some of this stuff and go ahead and actually figure out whether or not it's something or find out other questions that you may have. Now, last week, we were talking about how Paul's huge case was about the just absolutely amazing reality it is to be in Jesus. And he just goes, he wants everyone to know how awesome Jesus is. And so now he gets into this passage where he's saying, and that's why I'm doing everything I'm doing to tell you about Jesus. Jesus is so important that you have to know. And so we get that starting in verse 24. And it starts off with a really awkward verse that's super confusing and we're not going to just blaze right over. It. We're going to explain it. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body which is the church. Okay, pause. What all Paul is saying is this. Listen, <laughs> I was someone who, I opened up myself to Jesus, and when I did, I was blown away with him, and so I thought it was important for me to invest my life telling you about Jesus. But guess what? It's caused me a lot of heartache and grief. It's caused me sacrifice, but guess what? It's totally worth it, and I've got no reason to complain because, truth be told, when I look at Jesus, our Savior, and what he sacrificed and what he gave up for us— I'm not even like close to filling up the well of afflictions or sacrifice compared to him. So all of this is for you, and you are worth it. You're worth all this effort. You're worth all this in, information for me to pass on. But it still, doesn't compare with what Jesus has done for you. Verse 25, I have become its servant for, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. By the way, as we're going through, just listen to all the times that Paul uses this concept of fullness or completion. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but it's now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul's saying here, listen, I'm usually the smartest guy in the room. I walk in the room and religiously speaking, everyone bows to me because I'm brilliant. I'm genius. I know the Bible better than any of y'all. But here's something that I didn't know. I was totally clueless to this. I was clueless to, uh, about this until I met Jesus. And this was, that all that stuff that I thought was just for the Hebrews, all that stuff that I thought was just for the Jewish people, is actually, it was all leading to this where it's also for you, everybody. I was clueless to that mystery, but it's been the truth all along. And the drumbeat all along has been beating up to this point of explosion that this is now something that you guys get a chance to participate in. Verse 28, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone Fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have been met who I have not met in, pers- in person. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you through fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. Have you ever heard that phrase? Absent from you in the body, but present in spirit? This is where it came from. Isn't that cool? You learned something new today. I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Have you ever done something super, super difficult, but you found that it was worth it in the end? Showing up today? Um, back when Micah was 13, this, uh, with each of my boys, when they turned 13, I want to take them on a national park trip. And this was an amazing trip. Um, it was good that this was like the first one, because I, I did more as far as like the amount of mileage that we hiked than I would have done with my other kids. Julie, after this trip, said, don't, do that with any of the other kids, because way too many miles and, and, at altitude, When she was right. But, th- but Micah and I did it, and this is Micah and I standing in the picture. I love this picture. It makes me look really tall. I'm actually on a rock that's higher than his, the, his standing, but still love it. But, but this picture is so cool, because this is 10,000 feet. And this was after a massive, massive hike to get up to. This is called Cloud's Rest. And right over here, you know, we've all seen Half Dome, like the, the front beautiful face of Half Dome that like, Ansel Adams took pictures of. This is the side not so glamorous on the side, but still super cool. We did this one day. We hiked down into this valley and hiked down here. And then the next day we made the ascent to the top of Half Dome, which is 9,000 feet. So it's about a uh, thousand feet lower than where we're at right there. But the reason I love this picture is because I, I can't, it doesn't, the picture doesn't capture it, but we are both euphoric. We are so ecstatic. And the reason we're so ecstatic is we don't have one more foot to climb higher than we were. This is as far as we were going to climb, as far as height. That was it. and, and to get to this point, there were so many points where we wanted to give up. We were just like, we wanted to tap out because it was just like climbing higher and higher. And and we both have Illinois lungs, which means that we have weak lungs. We have like barely sea level lungs. And now we're trying to like go north of 5,000 feet and 6,000 feet and 7,000 feet, and 8,000 feet and 9,000 feet. And then we're there. And every step of that is just like. <gasps> and, and there's points. I, I wish I would have taken... Um, One of the other pictures that I had from this trip, because there was trips where we're like on the way up to this, to this point, just like 100 feet or 200 feet lower than we're at right here, where I just took a picture of Micah. He was up ahead of me and he was just leaning on like his walking stick and just looking at me like, why? What did I do? Who hurt you, Dad, that made you do this to me? Why? And it was like that type of, because again, it was torture every step. And it was points where we just wanted to stop. But in that moment, like when we finally clear the, the, the final spine, this like narrow thing where we're like walking across it and we climb up, take a couple more steps up and we're finally at cloud's rest. It was like, there was this weird, psychotic thought, like I would do that again like that. It was so worth it. It was so hard, but it was so worth it. The view that we got, had a chance to see and we just hugged each other like, you did it, you did it, you did it. We got on that. We next day we did Half Dome, and then eventually we got on the plane um, flying home. Because the one only thing that Julie wanted me to, to bring home as a souvenir was a, a living sun. And um, right as we're as the plane's about to take off, I, I was I just looked at Micah. I said, Micah, you did it. Like, there, do you know how few people have actually done that? And you know why there's so few people who've actually done that? Because it's stupid. Stupid hard. There's no escalators. If there was an escalator to go up to Cloud's Rest, we would have taken it. But there wasn't. There's no elevator. There's no helicopter that's going to drop you off there. You actually have to go through all the hard work to get there. But as soon as you get there, you realize what a lot of you have realized in a lot of other areas of your life. It's hard, but it's worth it. Many of you have had the experience, whether it's athletically or relationally or in your grades or in, in, in trying to get a job promotion that, that you did the hard work and it stunk. You did not like it. You wanted to tap out. But, but it was like all the hard work paid off because you got the promotion or all the work paid off because you got the grades that you needed to, to do what you wanna do or all the work paid off because eventually you were able to work out some of those areas of your marriage or whatever, but it was hard, but it was worth it. And every single person in this room, all of us, I've had the opposite as well. We've experienced the fact that we didn't work hard. And we're living with the repercussions of that. Had I worked harder on this area of my life, I wouldn't be here. Had I worked harder in getting grades, I wouldn't have this situation. Or had I worked harder on my marriage, we wouldn't be in this predicament. And so we all know what it's like about the concept of the fact that it's worth it. It's worth it. But as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've, and if you've grown up in the church, you've got this weird idea about working hard. That idea is almost like, like polar opposite from what we think of when we think about our faith. I'm not a Christian because I've worked hard. Who worked hard in order for me to be a Christian? Boom, yeah, Jesus worked hard. So because Jesus worked hard, it was like I was okay. I was able to, I'm able to be a Christian because of that. And part of it is because we've misinterpreted this passage. Another letter that Paul wrote, a letter to the church in Ephesus, starts in chapter two, says this. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and it's not from yourself, not from your hard work, it's the gift of God, not by works. And so if you grew up in the church or you understand the gospel, you know that you can't add to it, you can't like you didn't make your faith happen because you're such a hard-working Christian, you're such a moral person. That's not Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity at least. It's not because you worked hard that he saved you. Not by works so that no one can boast. And usually we keep it there, but the Bible doesn't. Paul didn't. Paul didn't say that. You know what I mean? I brought you to this dark moment for a reason. No. What does Paul say? So that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork. Now, in other passages or other translations, it says masterpiece or art piece. We are God's art, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Okay, I know I'm trying to refocus you. It's like, it's, like, it's like kitty cats with lasers, right? All of us ADD in the room. We're just like, yes! This is the service I've been waiting for. (laughs) Welcome to Mission Rave. (laughs) All right, together with me, folks. Created in Christ Jesus to do? uh, To created in Christ Jesus to do? That's right. So we are not saved by good works, but we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Your good works were not the gateway to get you in. But once you're saved, you recognize what you were designed for. And what you were designed for was to work hard. And this, this is the, the thing. When we're, we work hard, we realize that it's not us. It's the energy God's given us, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is why in that passage I read at the very beginning, Paul uses this phrase. He is the one who we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone, what? Fully mature. Okay, the, that word fully mature is teleos in Greek, and what it means is it's this idea of like, yeah, once I was a little guy, I was five years old, and then I was eight years old, and when I was eight, I started to think about, ooh, wouldn't it be cool to be older? Okay, if you're in elementary school, or you're in junior high, or you're in high school, you're living this. Even college, maybe a little bit. You're living this. You've got these cultural milestones of age. Like, when I was, when I was like in elementary school, I was like, man, I cannot wait to be old enough where my parents aren't telling me what to do. No, you can't have eight scoops of ice cream. <laughs> you're not the boss of me. I couldn't wait to actually be old enough to be able to make my own decisions. I actually, I couldn't wait to be 13. Because at 13, you're what? Yes! And if, you, if anyone here is 14 and older, you know what it's like. like. Yes, I remember being 13, and now I'm 13. And then what's the next big, like, the next milestone in age? What happens at 16 maybe, if your parents are nice. All right. And then, and then you get to drive and all of a sudden you're like, I can go places independent of my parents. This is getting better and better. And you jump from that to 18 to 21. There's all getting old rules. And it's like all, there's all these ideas of, man, every time I am able to hit one of these milestones, I have two things. I have the, I have more opportunities. And as I'm getting older, I've got more capabilities, I've got more opportunities to do stuff I previously could not do. You don't hand a five-year-old keys to the car, unless you're nuts. I've got more opportunities to do stuff I couldn't previously do, but I also have more capabilities to actually pull it off and do it. It's like awesome. It's so cool. And so Paul is saying, yeah, that's like in Christ. If you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for five years and you're operating and acting like a Christian of five years, totally appropriate. If you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for 15 years and you're acting like a Christian of five years, that's a problem. If you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for your, like, practical whole life, and you're still acting like a five-year-old Christian, or you're like, yeah, I don't know much about the Bible, but, you know, lots of questions in there. It's cool. I'm saved by grace. I don't have to do anything. I'd say, yeah, there's a problem there, because you're, you're you're like, you're, totally like double downing on the fact that I'm I'm okay to be like an infant in my faith, not growing. And Paul says that's not what we're about. He wants to see Christians become fully mature, where you actually have the ability to do more than you previously did in previous years of your faith and the capability to do that, capability and opportunity. And so what we want to do today is just basically say, how do we do this? The first way we do this, if we're echoing Paul, is to say that we are working hard to stay solid with Jesus. The first step of this is hard work with regard to our relationship with Jesus. And that sounds weird, because we're like, man, I've got to work hard at my relationship with God. You have to work hard on your relationship with anybody if you want it to be good. Okay? If you want to have a relationship like if you want to if you want to be a good master of your pet, you have to work at that. If you want to have a good relationship with the the people that are in your house, you have to work at that. A boyfriend, a girlfriend, you gotta work at that. This is all discipline and tough. And your relationship, because you're a faulty person, any relationship you have, including with God, takes sacrifice and work. And so I wanna just encourage you, wherever you're at right now, and today is what October 3rd, October 3rd, 2021. Think about where you're at in your faith. What if you didn't stay satisfied with that? What if, like, starting today, you said, where I was on October 3rd changed by October 10th? What if by the time Thanksgiving rolls around, you're seeing differences in your your walk because you're able to level up, you're willing to level up in your faith of, of going to the next step? If you're someone that shows up every once in a while at church, man, I love that you're here. That's so awesome. But what if you're like, I want to like that to be something to be like my weekly rhythm, that I, I or, orbit my week around that opportunity to gather with God's people. Or I, I, I'm someone who comes all the time, but I'm someone that's not like plugged into a group where I can actually have people pray for me and have accountability. So you sign up for a real life group. But, but beyond that, just like taking steps. Like wherever I'm at, I want to level up. I, I want to work hard. I, I want to be someone who's, who's focusing in on that. What if this fall, you could say that, I'm working hard to stay solid with Jesus. Most people I know that are not solid with Jesus are not solid with Jesus, not because they're bad people, but because they become lazy in their faith or apathetic in their faith. Don't be that. It's hard work, right? But it's it's worth it. Let this be another one of those things where every step you're like, oh, man. Keep on working hard to stay solid in your relationship with Jesus. Keep on growing in that. Now, Paul, he wasn't just satisfied with staying solid in his own relationship with Jesus, or being spiritually mature. He also wanted to be someone who was pouring into other people. Listen to what he says. He says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you. I'm working for you. For those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. He continues. My goal, here's what Paul wants to get out of this. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Okay, now just think about your world real quick. Think about the people you work with. Think about the people you go to school with. Think about the people you, the people you hang with. And, and ask yourself the question, do they know the mystery of God, namely Jesus? Do they have a full understanding of the riches of, of complete understanding of who Jesus is? Because most of the people that we know, they know about God, or they might, yeah, I do church on Easter and Christmas, or maybe not even that. Most people we know are kind of like, yeah, to, about their faith. So they, they don't know the full, under, the full richness, but you may. And if you do, what you have an opportunity to do is, is follow Paul's lead and actually work hard. Work hard to on ramp others to Jesus. It matters, it's so important. Um, I, I, uh, told, I talked about my son Rylan at Saturday service without his permission. I try not to do that with my kids, um, and so I had to apologize last night, and my wife rightfully said, that's probably something you should probably check with him on. So, uh, Rylan, is it okay if—all <laughs> right, I'm proud of this guy. I'm proud of my son. I'm proud of all my sons. But you know, one of the, it's one of the things that people think about. People either think one of two things about pastor's kids. Either they're angels or they're demons. <laughs> and there are some <laughs> that fall in that latter category, no doubt. My kids, are, are, are they're normal human beings. They're imperfect human beings just like Julie and I. Um, they're not perfect. But I, I am really, really proud of them. And I'm really, really proud of Ryland. Um, yesterday, um, Ryland runs cross-country like I've told you before. And that's like that's amazing, because he's, he's McFadden. He's our unicorn. <laughs> he's our only athletic one. And again, we're we're trying to. I'm sorry, Cole, yeah, Cohen, Cohen's, yes, yes, okay. But but <laughs> but it's one of those things where like we want to bubble wrap the kid and make sure that he you know he keeps on going because that's pretty awesome. But he, yesterday he he uh, reached a, a really cool level of uh, PRing, um, which I didn't know what that meant before this season. Really, uh, what, what PR means what? Yeah, jocks. Okay. <laughs> you make me sick. Personal record, though, and that was really cool. I was really proud of him for that. But I've got to tell you, I, as proud as I am of him pring, which is cool, um, I was more proud of him for something else. Um, he and his other cross-country friends have been, like, inviting their other cross-country friends to Evergreen, the, the junior high ministry on Wednesday night. Like, that's, like, that's cool because that's so weird to do that. I mean, invite people to youth group if you're a teenager. Would you do that? Like, when I was 13 years old, I shared my faith with Victor Gamboa, and he became a Christian. And I was like, well, I'm done with that evangelism thing until I see Jesus. And it was like, that was it. One and done. Boom. Victor, when he became a Christian, was like telling everybody. He was inviting everybody to church. People that I thought were not safe to bring to church, Victor was bringing to church. And, and like, that was just Victor. He's like... And this was what he was all about. But for me, like as a 13-year-old, I was so insecure. I mean, I was like, I've got so many things that I feel insecure about. I don't need one more thing. I have so many things that I feel inadequate about or like judged for as a human being at 13. I don't need to attack on the Jesus side of that and go, oh yeah, and by the way, would you like to know about Jesus? Or would you like to come to church with me? These thoughts were not in my 13-year-old brain. I didn't share my faith with, with Victor or invite Victor to church at school. I did it on, on, when I was training him how to do the, the, the paper route that I had because I was quitting and I had to train him. That's how we, we got in the conversation. And it changed his life forever, which I praise God for. But I was fly under the radar Christian. Christianity on the DL. Many of you are too. What does Ryland know that you don't? What does Ryland have that you don't, that I don't? nothing nothing in fact you probably have more than he has one of the things i love about our church is how it's a lot of times the younger people that wake us up a lot of us are here because our our kids invited us to church how cool is that what if we took a page from 13 year olds this year and worked hard to on-ramp those around us that are not convinced of Jesus, and we stopped pretending like it's totally okay for us to be totally silent with the people around us about the thing that's the most important part of our life. Now, that's tough. and You can guarantee that there's gonna be rejection or judgment or weird looks or whatever. It's gonna be hard, but folks, everyone in this room was invited by somebody at some point, Everyone in this room was shared the truth about Jesus at some point by somebody. And aren't we grateful? We are. What if we picked up that baton, learned from a 13-year-old, followed Paul's lead, and actually stepped and worked hard at that? Again, Paul, Paul was saying that he wanted these people to be fully mature in their faith, and they're in the world. I mean, they're not like just staying in like this commune of Jesus people or something. They're actually out in the world, which requires us, if we're going to be working hard in our faith, we're not just thinking about our own spiritual maturity. We're not just thinking about on-ramping other people to know about Jesus, but we're also having to react and respond to a watching world that's not always super pro what we believe. And so Paul's, you know, argumentation is simply to do something different. He says this. Nope. Oh. you know what, Sarah, could you advance to the next slide? He says, when he's talking about Jesus, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Let me just say this one more time. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is so cool because he's talking about Jesus and he says, I want you to think about Jesus in a certain way. And when I I... I've read through the book of Colossians tons of times. I've taught through the book of Colossians. This phrase has never jumped out at me until this week. This week, all of a sudden, this phrase became one of those underliner phrases like that when you look at someone else's Bible and they've underlined parts that are important to them, you're like, why did you underline that? That's so weird. That was this for me this week. Treasures, talking about Jesus in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When I think of wisdom, when I, when I, when I think of treasure, I totally go to like One-Eyed Willie's treasure. It's a total Goonies thing. It's like, like a treasure chest, like with gold and rubies and crowns and stuff. That's what I think of as treasure. As something you go to for all these riches that you can then spend them on, on whatever you want. If you had a treasure chest, what would you spend it on? Like that idea. And what Paul is saying is there's a treasure chest that is filled with wisdom and knowledge that o- is only found in Jesus, hidden to everyone else in the world. And one of the things that's so important for us to understand is this, is that, that when, when we are people that, that are responding to our culture, we need to realize that if the world is asking questions that everyone's trying to find answers to, but Jesus is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. He is the source. He's the treasure of that. We can go to him. Can you advance the next slide, Sarah? We need to be the type of people that are working hard to see the world through the eyes of Jesus. And I, w- I want you to, because this, this is like the, the Neo moment in The Matrix. There's a moment in The Matrix where Keanu Reeves's character, Matrix 1, where all of a sudden he, he goes from this whole thing of like not believing that there's another world that's invisible to him to actually believing it but not understanding it. But then right at the end of the movie, all these agents are like attacking him and they all pull their guns, and they all start unloading on him, and as the bullets go through the air all of a sudden, all of a sudden you see the bullets stop and you see for the first time that Neo sees for the first time the matrix. He sees all the little like, you know, neon green numbers and he understands how it works. And for the first time he's able to stop the reality that's going around him, and process it. And once he sees that, he can never unsee it. And once he sees that, it's forever changed. It's like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. She goes from, MGM shoots the film in black and white, and then when you're in Oz, you see everything in color. It's like there's this radical shift that you can't unsee. And when you go back to black and white, you recognize how different the two are. When you have met Jesus, and you are letting Jesus be the source of your wisdom and knowledge, everything changes and you see everything differently. Here's a couple of examples. Go ahead and hit the next one, Sarah. The first one is tolerance. Um, one of the things in our culture, we, our culture is asking really important questions like, shouldn't we tolerate one another? Shouldn't we be tolerant of one another? And Christians have gotten a rap, sometimes well-deserved, for being the type of people that are intolerant. Um, Christians have been given the, the reputation of being hateful or bigoted or uh, you know, against things, prudish, narrow-minded, whatever. And, and Tolerance is this virtue within our culture. It's one of the last remaining virtues our culture has, tolerance. And so the culture says we should be more tolerant of one another, which means that, look, you do you, I do me. Let's just not, like, bother with each other. It's cool. And the thing is, is that I don't know how to respond to that. I'll tell you one thing the way Christians oftentimes do and within my heart I oftentimes do is, is to get defensive, because when I when I hear that, I say, "Wait, you're telling me that I should be I should apologize for being intolerant? I got truth on my side. I got I've got I've got like the Bible on my side. I got you know I, I and all of a sudden I start getting defensive and I start pretending like this person or these people or whatever are the enemy, when Paul clearly says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers behind those flesh and blood in the invisible realm, the spiritual battle that's at work, not the people." And and the crazy thing is, is that I don't know what to do with this, but I do have an answer if if Jesus is the treasure chest of wisdom and knowledge. If Jesus is the treasure chest of wisdom and knowledge, I don't go with what I'm going to do because I'm not the smartest person to answer this. But what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do with people in his world that disagreed? What did Jesus do with people that had a different sex ethic than he had? What did Jesus do with people in his world that were, were tyrannical or oppressive from the government? What did he do? What did he call his disciples to do? The people that were following Jesus. He didn't tell them to tolerate them. He never once said you should tolerate them. you've got to do more than that. Tolerance is like nothing. Tolerance is like one of the, the, one of the easiest, phone-it-in, low-level responses anyone can give. I'll tolerate you. Jesus said, no, that's not enough. You have to do more than that. If you're my follower, you have to work hard at not just tolerating someone. Because tolerance is basically, I'll just accept the fact that you're different, and I can hate you behind closed doors. Jesus said, as Christians, we're called to love. And love is a lot harder than tolerance. Because what love does is this. Love says, I can absolutely disagree with you, and I will not demonize you. I can absolutely think that you are fully wrong And yet I want to be a better friend and advocate for you than anyone else possibly can. I can disagree with you and tell you to your face with complete clarity that we do not agree. And yet I want you to know that I want to be the person that's going to love you better than anyone else. When we look at Jesus as the treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge, we see Jesus going up to someone who's caught in sexual sin, who had broken the sex ethic of the Jewish law. And and for that, she deserved judgment and, and justice against her. And what did Jesus do? Jesus comes in and he stands in the way of all the people that wanted to give her her religious comeuppance and defends her. And when they all leave, turns to her and is able to give her the truth, go and sin no more. He didn't say, hey, what you're doing is great. It's perfectly okay. He doesn't. He shows her something better than tolerance. He shows her the ability to disagree with he could actually love someone. He could affirm someone without endorsing their behavior. He can embrace someone without, without high-fiving their decisions. Our culture is starving for that because in tolerance land, you're tolerant for only so long before you start to eat your own, before you start to like, take each other apart because no one is truly tolerant if there is no love. Jesus calls his disciples to do something greater. So if we're going to go to the treasure trove of that, we see tolerance differently Next slide. We see the next one differently as well. How could, I, uh, how could a good God allow suffering? This is such a good question. A, a, a world is looking for knowledge and wisdom on this, and they're asking the question, you know what, here's why I don't believe, because a good God, how could a good God, you say that God is so good, well either God's not good or he's not powerful because suffering happened in my family, suffering happened in my life, and I, I don't know how to put that to, those things together. And if you're asked this, you may not be smart enough to answer it. I'm not. I'm not smart enough to give a good answer to that, but you know who is? The person who's the treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge. So I go to him. How did Jesus respond to suffering? Did he promise us that there would be no suffering? No, in fact, he promised us there would be suffering. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. You're not alone. I've overcome the world. Did he promise us that if we followed his lead, that our lives would be good and end well? No, everyone who was closest to Jesus died a horrible death, except for John, and he ended in prison. So, mm. Jesus himself was perfectly good, and yet the worst suffering happened to him. So the, the idea of this narrative is out there, but it's just not a biblical narrative. The truth is, is that suffering is a reality because of the brokenness of this world. I mean, Jesus said that he is not only the way, the truth, and life, but he's the way to experience life. And so what we have in in suffering is the fact that when Jesus is our treasure trove of truth, we see that Jesus did battle with suffering by taking suffering on himself. Because suffering is caused by sin, he did what was necessary to end that cycle, to end that momentum on the cross. Jesus goes to the cross to suffer, to end suffering. Jesus goes to the cross to die, to end death. And so in Jesus, we have an answer to not Not only where does suffering come from, but is there anything that could be done to stop it? And the answer is yes. And if you're in Christ, even your deepest suffering will not be the end of the story. It'll never be the end of the story. How could a good God allow suffering? I, I would ask that with looking at God the Father watching his son die on the cross for my sin. How could a good God allow his son to die? And the only answer that we have from Scripture is in order for us, you and me, to receive forgiveness, to restore. And because... He had the power to overcome it. Next slide. Another great question that, again, we need to go back to the treasure trove of who Jesus is, is don't all religions lead to the same God? I don't believe that they do. I make the exclusive claim that I'm from a vantage point of saying, based on all the information that I have, I believe that Jesus, because Jesus didn't believe this either. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus made this real exclusive claim. And I, I'm on Team Jesus. I believe him. And, and, and honestly, that's not unique in Christianity. Uh, Muslims believe the same thing. They believe that their system of govern or, or not government, of, of religion is the only way. Hindus believe that their system is, is uniquely um, superior as well. And even people that say, well, I believe that all religions lead the same God, are making a superior exclusive claim. They're saying, I know more than the Muslims and the Christians and the Hindus and the Buddhists, because I can say I have a privileged posture of being able to say, yes, I see them all, and they're all equally right, because I'm so smart. So everyone's making an exclusive claim. The question is, which exclusive claim is accurate? Because it's all coming from a vantage point of superiority. I don't have the the intelligence to answer this. But I know that I'm banking on Jesus' intelligence who said that he is the only way. And when I have had friends that are Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and atheists and agnostics, all of these world religions are started by smart people or lack of faith are filled with smart people who are asking the right questions. Every world religion started from somebody asking a good question. And, and with Muslims, you have Muslims saying, listen, there is one true God and he is not cool with sin and, he's, and his wrath is gonna be poured out against humanity. That's Islam. And I would say, you guys are right to a point, but you miss Jesus. Because Jesus would agree, yes, sin leads to, it leads to God's wrath, but God took upon himself all of the wrath so that we wouldn't have to. My, my, my Buddhist friends would have the ability to say, listen, Buddha said that everything in this life is suffering, and it all comes from our desire. We love things. We love people. We love stuff. We love power. And because we have these things, we have suffering. And so we need to to remove power. We need to remove the love of people, and we need to remove material possessions. And if we do that, we'll have Zen. And they had the right questions, but they missed out on the answer because they missed out on Jesus. Jesus said, if you center your life on me, then all of a sudden the flavor and relationships and life has new meaning because it's ordered around me as God, not people as God or stuff as God or power as God. So every world religion is asking the right questions. All of your friends who are of different faiths or lack of faith are asking the right questions. But you know what they're missing out on? The treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge found only in Jesus. And you've got that. You're not smarter than them, but you've got the answer. And I wish that could have worked in school would have loved to have been like the dumbest guy in the room, but had all the right answers. You have the right answer. And so because of that, you have the opportunity to share your faith with people that don't know him and see the world and respond, not as the smartest person who's smarter than anyone else, but someone who knows the answer. And if Jesus is that, you can have those conversations they'll be hard. But I tell you what, I promise you, they're worth it. Last slide is that. I want us to end with that, to know that. Because honestly, everyone in this room are at different stages of difficulty right now. Some of you walk in, and I love being out there, and I don't get a chance to say hi to everyone, but I get the chance to say hi to a lot of you. Some of you are coming out, like coming into this building, and you're coming in here from a week that's been just, ah. Some of you have come from a week that's been like, ah, but it's being, it's preceded by a week that was like, ah, and it's difficult. All of you are here. You, you guys made it this far. You went through 2020. Congratulations. That's amazing. If you're a Christian, there were so many moments in the last couple years you wanted to tap out. And if you believe that, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that he's going to return. And many of you are like, now would be good. Why not now? This is a perfect time. And yet... You thought you couldn't make it through, but you kept on inching and you kept on walking and you wanted to give up and you're just exhausted and your lungs are tired because they're earthbound lungs. But I promise you, if you're in Christ, you keep on walking. It is hard, but it's worth it. And one day, one day, you're going to take your last breath. One day, you're going to make it to that final ascent and you're gonna stand there and you will not say in that moment, I did it. You will see Jesus. And you will realize that all that was bad in this life has been made good. All that was painful was reversed. All the suffering reversed its engines because of Christ's sacrifice and is now restored. And that moment, the euphoria and what you will be able to see and you will be able to look at him and say, you did it. And all the hard work that you had every step of the way and you wanted to quit will have been worth it. I promise you that. Don't give up. Keep on following his lead so that we may be fully mature in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that you ignite a passion to see that happen. Lord, I pray just realistically that the people in this room, we will take this, those of us in Christ, we will take seriously the idea of being fully mature in you. That we will allow our faith to level up and not just stagnate not just be where it's at, but actually see growth so that by Thanksgiving, we will have been able to look back and say, look look what you did. Look at the small steps you've already taken. Lord, that we'll be able to say by Christmas, we'll be able to see growth in the way that we interact with others. Not because we're, we're amazing religious people, but because we want to follow you and we want to be fully mature in you. Lord, I pray for any of the areas that are hard difficult areas for us, whether it's our interactions with others about our faith or even just being consistent with our own faith, ourselves and our own decisions. I pray that you give us the ability to surrender those to you and to trust you, to know that we just got a matter of days on this planet before we meet you and that every step of following your lead will be worth it. And God, when we get a chance to see you face to face, we will give you the thanks. We'll give you the glory. For it's in your name that we pray, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. All right, let's go live it.